Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We have arrived at a midterm election that threatens to plunge the country even deeper into the polarized and fetid swamp that we have been unable fully to climb out of ever since Donald Trump walked down the Trump Tower escalator in 2015. The electorate continues to be on a knife's edge of division between the two major parties, and that is far from unprecedented. The feature that threatens to rend the very fabric of our democracy is a Republican Party in continuing thrall to Trump, committed to the big lie and to the tacit or even explicit encouragement of a violent extremist culture seemingly eager to ensure victories with force if necessary. The stakes of the national flirtation with autocracy were on vivid display in the brutal attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband by a demented extremist looking to kidnap the Speaker of the House. The aftermath of the attack featured jokes and dog whistles from Republicans, including some likely to be wielding significant power come January, all of which provokes deep concern that we will look back on the imminent midterms as another crossroads that brought us even further down the path of autocratic rule. To help us navigate through a fearsome legal and political minefield, we are really happy to welcome three commentators who combine extensive political experience with deep insight, and they are Bill Crystal, the editor-at-large at The Bulwark and the founder and director of Defending Democracy Together, an organization dedicated to defending America's liberal democratic norms, principles, and institutions. He founded the Weekly Standard in 1995 and edited that influential magazine for over two decades. And he served in senior positions in the Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations. He is also the host of the highly regarded and expertly staffed video series and podcast, Conversations with Bill Crystal. Thank you, as always, for coming to Talking Feds. Great to be with you, Harry. Carol Lee, a first-time guest on Talking Feds, well-known to most of you as a White House correspondent for NBC News. She's also covered the White House since 2008 with various organizations, including the Wall Street Journal and Politico. Carol recently served as the president of the White House Correspondents Association. I think that's become a more interesting job than it used to be, (laughs) and has been a board member since 2010. She, of course, appears regularly on TV and radio. It's my pleasure to welcome her for the first time to Talking Feds. Thanks for joining us, Carol. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And Governor Christine Todd Whitman, the president now of the Whitman Strategy Group, a consulting firm that specializes in energy and environmental issues. And she is also co-chair of the recently founded Forward Party. She served, of course, in the cabinet of President George W. Bush as administrator of the EPA from 2001 to 2003. And she was the 50th governor of the state of New Jersey and its first woman governor, serving from 1994 until 2001. She's the author of a New York Times bestseller called It's My Party Too, whatever is that referring to, (laughs) which was published in January of 2005. 
And thank you so much for coming on such an important week, Governor Whitman. Always good to be with you, and I'd have to change the title of the book, Harry. (laughs) All right. So look, our last two episodes have focused on a Republican advance to a position where they look to be strong favorites to take control of the House and even money for the Senate. So rather than try to tease that or analyze it anymore, I thought, let's be clear-eyed, hopeful, but clear-eyed. So given the consistent movement and the overall polling, let's just credit the conventional wisdom that the Republicans do hold a small but real edge going into Tuesday's election. And let me start here, and especially for the governor and Bill. In your years in politics, you've seen late surges change elections. Again, crediting that we are where Nate Silver says we are, how frequent are sufficiently dramatic shifts in the last few days, and what typically drives them? Well, I think we're seeing it right now. The wave happened, started uh, maybe a week ago. We saw things really start to change into the Republicans' favor, particularly around the issues of the economy, as it always is, and crime. And the Democrats have just not been able to put together a message that speaks effectively to the majority of the American people on those two issues. Abortion certainly created a wave back when the decision was first handed down, but that was too long ago. Now I think we're in the middle of the wave, and I don't see it changing before Tuesday. I'm a bit of a skeptic on on all this. It was never a wave election. Everyone wanted it to be a wave election because they looked at the last few mid-years and those were waves mostly. And that's not a bad metaphor. It is just a metaphor, however. I mean, very early on, I was skeptical that it was a wave because I looked at the generic ballot. It was about plus two, plus three Republican. This is way before Dobbs. And I thought, that's not really quite what a wave looks like. And at the individual races, were pretty competitive. Then the Democrats had a bit of a surge after Dobbs. Republicans had a bit of a counter-surge in September. I actually think that stopped, and if anything, there's a bit of a Democratic. But that's, it's an election with countervailing currents, I would say. Somewhat, somewhat different in different states, somewhat different in different geographic regions, for example. I think Democrats are going to hold the Senate personally, but what do I know? I mean, I could be wish-casting. I think Republicans probably win the House. But for example, there's clearly a, a Democratic overperformance in parts of the Midwest and the Plain States sort of Eisenhower, Dole Republicans, if you will, continuing to move away from a Trumpy Republican party. There's clearly Republican overperformance in, I'll oversimplify this, in Trumpy areas in blue states. It's as if they finally decided in upstate New York and in parts of uh, inland California that they were going to sort of do what they did in Pennsylvania and Ohio one or two or three cycles ago. And so they were held back in a way by the nature of their state, you might say. So I think there's a lot going on, but it's somewhat countervailing. And I, I think the House and Senate could go in somewhat different directions. And these state races are really on a, on a knife's edge. When you see polls that are consistently 48, 47, 46, 48, there's no wave. That's that's just very, very close election. There's been some slight movement in, in both directions now, I would say. The big picture uh, is that it's a 50-50 nation. And for someone like me, and I can speak for Governor Whitman too on this, for someone, if you're anti-Trump and the fact that it's still 50-50, after four years of a Trump presidency, disregard for the rule of law, uh, everything that happened January 6th, that for me is the big and depressing fact. The Republican Party is paying no obvious price politically for being a conspiratorial, violence-adjacent in some cases, election-denying 
party. Individual candidates have gone too far, Mastriano or something, in Pennsylvania, and will lose. But, you know, Carrie Lake is on the bubble. A lot of other people are in terms of winning. And so for me, that means going forward, just to finish this point, it's going to be as Trumpy or Trumpier a Republican Party in 2023 as it has been in 2020, 2021, 2022. And that wasn't inevitable. But it's pretty striking if you step back and look from 30,000 feet. It's like we had January 6th and and, and nothing changed. (laughs) The one thing I thought was, well, at least this is finally over. So the general point here, I guess, is two points here, two points there, where there's still a big influence of Trump, who is in today's New York Times said to be preparing an announcement. I know there's pretty strong early voting, for example, including among the young. Do you see anything out there that might influence or impinge on the dynamic that does have the traditional party out of power, you know, with a nose lead? Everything feels pretty baked right now. I think that the one question that's hanging out there is if anyone has a good pulse on what voters are feeling and thinking, we have just not had a good track record of that. And I don't know that that how much better that's gotten. We'll see. From the White House's perspective, I can tell you what they're thinking, and that is yeah. they are resigned to having a bad night on Tuesday and resigned that the election could continue on through the week in terms of when results are coming in. You used the word clear-eyed at the start of this. That is actually <laughs> a word, word the, that a White House official used to me, which is they are clear-eyed about this. And I think they're resigned to the House turning And now it's just a question of margins in their view. The Senate, there's still a little hope whether or not that's justified. You know, we just don't know yet, but they are prepared and they're preparing for Washington and the country to just look different on Wednesday morning. And so that's resulted in a number of things. There's a change in the governing strategy. There'll be a crash to get stuff done in the lame duck that they want to get done. And frankly, that some Republicans want to get done and are afraid they won't be able to with a new Congress. There's going to be investigations that they've been preparing for for months. There could be some staff turnover, though President Biden is not known for firing anyone. So it's unclear how much of a turnover there will be. And, and then there's the finger pointing and the big question, and the White House is aware that this is going to escalate. And that is whether President Biden should run in 2024. That question has been muted for a little while, and it's going to come right back up as soon as this is over. And if Democrats have a really bad night, that's going to just fuel those questions. Wow. What really worries me, though, is the state and local elections. You have 18 Republican candidates for governor who are election deniers. You have 10 Republican candidates for attorneys general who are election deniers, and 12 candidates for secretary of state who are election deniers. And those are the very people who oversee the elections. You have a Republican gubernatorial candidate. Now I can't remember which state he was from, who said, if I get elected, I'll make sure that Republicans never lose another election. And that is so undemocratic. But getting people to focus on that is hard. I mean, it's too esoteric, frankly. They, they, hey, it's always been this way. We've had bad times. Things will be fine. But No, these people are in a position where they really can change the basic rules of the game. And when you put people who don't believe in our electoral process in charge of it, we could have some really, really hard times coming forward. That's actually, it's something that when, you know, Joe Biden was vice president in 2010 during the shellacking that President Obama then said he took. And he's familiar with how this goes when you have a change like this. 
What's different this time, all of those things I just mentioned, governing, investigations, finger pointing, staff turnover, that's all going to happen. What's different this time is that, is the election deniers, is the conspiracy theories, is the disinformation. They're going to be battling that on top of all of those other changes. And that's just a different dynamic. And it's not clear that this White House has a real handle on how to deal with that. I'm so glad you guys brought that up because I did want to move to the gubernatorial and the secretaries of state. I'll just note in passing that as a kind of last move, White House and Biden had a kind of interesting gambit where Biden did try to drive home, you know, we can't take democracy for granted any longer. We think of him as sort of Scranton Joe focused on kitchen table politics, but he really tried to make the case that democracy is on the ballot. And I guess we can ask whether he made the sale. But moving directly to your point, Governor, and you would know it better than anyone, I mean, it has very bad auguries immediately for taking the pulse of where we are in the country, as Bill said, but it's got very practical concerns for 2024 because the people who will then be in office are going to be in a position to distort and try to direct the result, notwithstanding the will of the voters. All right. And if you look at some of these bills that have been pending that so far we've been able to hold off, they change the dynamic completely as to who can vote, where they can vote, how they can vote. Well, Pennsylvania right now, with that uh, having lost that case because the Supreme Court there was split. And so the, right. the law that was proposed goes to say, even if your ballot, your mail-in ballot was postmarked before or on election day, if you didn't write it out in hand, it doesn't count. Disenfranchising people over something like that makes no sense and is scary. And you're going to see worse kinds of bills. There, there are bills out now that are pending that would allow one person to call into question an election and actually force a recount and force hand counting of ballots, which only leads to more time for more conspiracy theories, for more doubters. They're really undermining our democracy. And frankly, Trump has been on that bandwagon. You have to give him credit for- He was ahead of it, really, right? He's been doing it. Right along since, well, before 2016, even Mitt Romney's race, he said, was stolen that election. But right after that, he kept beating that drum. And it's it's gotten into people's consciousness. Just a very quick lawyer's note here, which is maybe the head of the parade of horribles is the Supreme Court argument coming up in a few weeks where yeah. they may effectively hold that as between state legislatures and state courts, whose right. job it is to interpret state law, state legislatures, which of course lean Republican, have ultimate authority as a matter of federal law. Completely head-bending idea, but it, it could be coming at us like a freight train. I mean, look, I think most of, we've been, Republican Accountability Project, is, we've been pretty involved in some of these races. I think most of the most rabid Secretary of State candidates in swing states will lose Michigan and Arizona, I think. I think in some of the most rabid gubernatorial candidates along those lines, and Michigan and Pennsylvania, for example, will lose. So it could be worse, but they also could win in Arizona and Nevada and elsewhere. So some states will be worse than others. I am worried, just two things, though, but the general climate and the way in which the Republican Party is going is very worrisome. I mean, are we confident there won't be, incidentally, violence and intimidation and riots on Wednesday? I mean, I, I'm very worried about this. If Carrie Lake is ahead at midnight in Arizona by a, two points and is behind by a half point by 8 a.m. Wednesday morning, which is totally possible and consistent right. with the 2022 20, returns, 
Is she going to concede gracefully? Is she going to challenge it? Is she going to find supporters of hers who will testify to terrible fraud going on at different places in the state? Will she not call for thousands of her supporters to go to the Arizona Convention Center and make sure that the election is not being stolen? Will they not go? Will they not be armed? I mean, I think the degree to which we could be in a situation that we have very rarely seen in modern America on Wednesday or Thursday of this week, let alone the next you know weeks and months and years, which are also extremely worrisome. I'm very worried about that. And secondly, more broadly also, I think, look, a lot of these races are very close. And so the country's kind of 50-50. And so in a way, you shouldn't overinterpret a 50.3 to 49.7 victory. I mean, what does it show really about the country? But if some of these candidates whom Trump has sort of invented, helped win primaries, right. supported in the general election, then win, it's a huge victory for Trump. And it will accelerate the move towards Trumpism. It's not just the status quo. I mean, if if Carrie Lake, and she's the most important of them, but I want to say the same is true of the governor candidate in Wisconsin, the same is true of, of Oz in Pennsylvania, the same is true of Walker in Georgia. None of those people would be the Republican nominee today if Trump hadn't you know, picked them out a year ago. None of them was supported originally by the Republican establishment in their state. Ducey campaigned against Carrie Lake as recently as you know a week before the primary, right? Trump will say, truthfully, I got them nominated. I won the primaries for them. I supported them in the general. I did rallies for them. All of you smart people said, oh, with a kiss of death, Democrats spent money to help Carrie Lake in Arizona. If she then, she's the most important, I think. If she wins, the degree to which the whole party decides, okay, that's the way to win. And incidentally, if you're an ambitious 28-year-old or 48-year-old running for office in 2023 or 2024, you think, you know what I have to do? I have to make sure Donald Trump endorses me in my primary, no matter what. That whatever is the ticket for admission. And I'm going to say whatever I need to say to get Trump on board, and they won't be wrong. So th- I think people are underestimating the overall effect of this election if the election deniers do well. It's not as if it's just like a stable snapshot and, oh, well, this state has a bad election denier and this doesn't. Though that's extremely important in terms of the practicalities of what would happen in 24 in terms of overturning you know, the results and so forth. But the overall spirit of the Republican Party goes even more in a Trumpist, conspiratorial, you know, somewhat anti-democratic, somewhat violence-tolerating direction. That's what worries me the most about the next weeks and months and years, though. Yeah. And it's not somewhat, I think you're being generous when you well, say yeah. somewhat election denying, a somewhat violent yeah. prone. Yeah. You know, that's what's truly scary. I mean, this is real stuff we're talking about and people will get hurt and lives could be lost. You don't know. But this is as close to a revolution, I think, as, as we've ever seen. And, and what it's doing to us internationally on the international stage is also important for our ability to continue to be relevant. And I worry terrifically when you have the Republicans saying, well, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is going to have a lot more power in the House, should Republicans take it and says not another penny to Ukraine. And you want to say, that's fighting our war. Have you ever looked at history? Go back, please go back to the 30s and 40s. But of course, they haven't and they won't. And it's worrisome. With seven grandkids, I'm really scared. (laughs) Yeah. And look, I'll just add that what you say about Trump bill seems to me to be the case, whether or not he runs, whether or not he's in jail, he will be the most powerful, important mm-hmm. figure in the party. And, the- and he's going to run. He's not going to be in jail. And if he's indicted, yeah. he'll run, incidentally. If he's in jail, he'll run. Yeah, that's true. Carol has done probably reporting on this and knows more than we do. But I've always thought he would announce right after the election. I said today somewhere else that I thought he should just announce on election day. I would actually be fairly clever, I think. He would like get in every single story. If a yeah. couple of his candidates win, he's there on election night taking credit. But 
I don't know how solid this reporting is that he'll announce a week later, but the degree to which Trump gets to be front and center, half of Biden's own mind and his White House will say, I've got to run again because I'm the only one who can beat Trump. The other half and most Democrats outside the Biden White House will say, "Ugh, you know, we need a fresh start and a generational turnover. But I'm, I'm curious if I could just, I mean, ask Carol, what do you think about that? We're going to all heave a sigh of relief, you know, just because it's over and people are going to try to take a few days off on November 9th. And Trump's yeah. going to announce right away and there's going to be leadership elections in the House and there could be chaos in some state capitals. It's going to be crazy, I think. Carol, let me ask you to add to that. Who do you see if Biden doesn't run, if he's not the nominee, who would it be? As the question that Democrats ask themselves, it's a question that the president himself in private meetings at fundraisers, and I've talked to people who've talked to him at various events, will walk people through. If not me, who? Is Kamala going to beat him? Is Buttigieg going to beat Trump? You know, And so that's the kind of exercise that he goes through and that Democrats go through and that they will be going through on Wednesday, for sure. And our reporting is that Trump is going to announce before December, with the giant caveat that having covered him during his time in office, he can change his mind on a dime and he could run or he might not run or he might do a big event and just say hi and there's no there there. So no one fully knows, but that's the expectation. And then that puts pressure on the White House and the president. Does he then try to declare earlier. Our reporting is that the president's going to file paperwork soon after the holidays. So, you know, they're looking closer to January than later, like April, which is what President Obama did for his reelection. And does he try to move that up? Because Democrats are going to be asking those questions again. Oh, should he run? Is he the best person? And one of the things that you're going to see, I was talking to somebody who's with the president at a fundraiser earlier this week who said, they're going to look at the polling. When you match up Biden versus Trump and then you match up, you know, Kamala Harris versus Trump, it's Biden's going to come out as the one who looks at least right now at this snapshot in time as the candidate who's most viable. So that's the argument that he's going to make. Look, I've talked to people who think that the president would not run again if Trump didn't, that he's frustrated in the job. He obviously likes the job. But it's not the Washington he knows. He doesn't really understand it. He sees these guys in the Senate. They used to be his friends. And he says, you know, who are these people? And he's obviously older. But if Trump is in the race, the belief among people close to the president is that he's in the race, too. And I know I interviewed the first lady recently and, you know, she's supportive of, of him running again. And he has the family behind him. And so it looks like it will be a matchup until it's not. I mean, he can always pull back and Trump can always pull back too. Just in thinking through also the next few weeks and months, Trump will or won't be indicted, maybe in Georgia, but more importantly, I would say at the federal level. So then if he is, and if the House is Republican, they will go totally crazy. They will impeach right. Merrick Garland. Mm -hmm. The Hunter Biden hearings will be on six sessions a week of that. And, they, you know, and that could be, who knows what they'll find there. They'll try to defund parts of the Justice Department. I mean, it's going to be, we thought 95 was dramatic. It's going to be Newt, ugly. You know, Newt and Clinton. I mean, it's, it's going to make 95 look like a picnic, you know? And it's going to be ugly every which way. If Trump's indicted or all the Trump, is Trump going to take it? Like, oh, well, I, that's it. There's the rule of law in this country. I've got to be very quiet and I can't ask people to go. <laughs> yeah, right. I think that's a rhetorical question. <laughs> I don't think so. There'll be a march on Washington <laughs> with a million people marching on the Justice. I'm very worried about like January yeah, yeah. 6th type things. And, mm -hmm. and then there'll be. Some people on the left will say, not ridiculously, well, wait a second, we can't just let them have the streets. We need to show support for the rule of law or for, you know, I mean, people haven't quite, I think, internalized how ugly, as Carol said, the politics could be. 
If he's indicted, there's a year until he comes to trial. It gets uglier and uglier. I just wanted to double back quickly on something I thought about while preparing for this episode on this farm team question and Kamala Harris, because we were just talking about governors. You know, four years ago, we might have predicted that at this point we'd be looking at two emerging superstars in the party, so it seemed. Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams, and they're both now running for governor, and it looks like they're going to do worse, A, lose, and B, do worse than four years ago, notwithstanding being very attractive candidates in different ways. And that's, I think, another way of framing the continuing vitality or influence of Trumpism. If they were going to win Tuesday, they would immediately be top of the list for who uh, displaces Biden and runs. And I think it seems more likely, I wonder if anyone disagrees, that they're just footnotes come Wednesday. I think there's a better Democratic bench than people. I mean, if Gretchen Whitmer wins in Michigan by six points, which I think is quite likely, she will have won a state that is that Trump won in 2016 and that Biden won by a point and a half in 2020. Pretty hard to say. This is where I think the Biden people are slightly in a bubble. They think he's the only one who could beat Trump. Well, Whitmer's going to win Michigan by six points. It's not a presidential race and her opponent's not Trump. I understand that. But in principle, if the governor will have won in the same electorate by a bigger margin than Biden, Josh Shapiro is going to win Pennsylvania by 10 points. Mm -hmm. Now, Mastriano is, again, weaker than Trump, but he will have won Pennsylvania. I think people are underestimating slightly the effect of election night itself. If Ryan wins in Ohio, which I think is sort of one in three, one in four, winning Ohio, a state Biden lost by eight points. So I, not that any of those people necessarily would be the leading presidential candidate right away. I mean, but but I think the, the notion of Biden's, uh, and I say this as someone who supported Biden enthusiastically in 2020, so I, I, and I like a lot of what he's done as president, but the notion that Biden's the only one who can beat Trump, I mean, he, he beat him. So, okay, he, he beat him and Hillary Clinton lost. So that's a fact. But I think, and I'm wondering when they do, if they start doing polls, incidentally, are we so sure that a Buttigieg-Whitmer ticket isn't as strong as a Biden-Harris ticket against Trump? I'm not sure of that, actually. So I'm interesting to see what they find when they start doing these polls. And again, I think everyone's been quiet, as they should have been if you're a Democrat for the last two months, basically, about Biden and you know running again and everyone's on board. But I do think that will change very quickly after Tuesday. I agree. I think there are lots to see on both sides. I think you're going to see some Republicans hopefully sane Republicans who are going to win, who are suddenly going to become much more attractive. Maybe nobody can overcome Trump within the Republican apparatus. There is no Republican Party. There's a cult of Trump, but they control the label right now and they control the official process. But there are going to be other opportunities to get people on the ballot and to be able to put together a fusion ticket the way the problem solvers are are trying to do their focus right now. If somebody like an Evan McMullen were able to pull it out in Utah, I'm afraid that polls show that that's not going to happen. But, you know, there's an independent who can win in a solidly Republican state. But we'll see. Bill's absolutely right. There's so much we don't know that we will find out after the election of who's viable. I mean, Carol, I think you've probably got to see that too. Yeah, it's interesting, the Whitmer, Shapiro, those are not names that are currently in that exercise that the president does with people he's trying to convince that he's the best person to run against Trump. And if you add them to the mix, particularly after Tuesday, it'll be interesting to see how they play. Because one of the problems when I talk to Democrats that Democrats raise is 
Kamala Harris. She's seen as the heir apparent. Does the president have to get behind her? And what does that look like? And it creates a lot of consternation among Democrats who think that she's just not very good as a candidate. She's she's not out there. She doesn't connect with the American people in a way that that they feel a, a nominee is going to need to do in order to beat Trump and doesn't speak to voters that you may be able to peel away from Trump or anyone who is running and wins the Republican nomination is still in the mold of Trump. So if you add those other names into the mix, I'd be curious to see how that shakes out and what the president and his team have to say about it. Just one last point on this. It's often like a someone who runs first who's a bit of a sacrificial lamb and, you know, Gene McCarthy to Bobby Kennedy, if you want to, for us oldsters, if you want to think of a model for how this sometimes works. And I mean, Pritzker wants to run in Illinois. I don't think he's mm-hmm. going to be the next president of the United States, but he's a billionaire and he's been a decent governor and he could run and just say time and for Newsom a change. Wants to Newsom run. really wants to run. And it's not quite my taste, but he is a capable politician and he's the governor of California, which is not nothing. Polis and Colorado, the Triffy really wants to run. He's also wealthy. That part will help because Biden will have the apparatus behind him. I mean, these people aren't going to run against Biden. For me, the big question is on November 15th, do they start to say, you know, I respect President Biden, wonderful job. And of course, if he runs, it's a different story. But I think it's important that we all begin to think about generational change and governors. Governors actually have the usual governor pitch they can make. Mm-hmm. I think the Biden team's kidding themselves a little if they think that because everyone that who's in Washington, basically, who's a good friend of Ron Klain and Anita Dodd and, and Biden himself, and they've known him for 30 years, because everyone is telling him, well, sir, if you, if you decide to go again, of course, everyone's going to recede. I don't think it's going to quite feel like that. I'm not saying they're going to run, you know, but I I think there'll be much more people sticking their heads up and floating ideas about, isn't it time for someone to, someone for a fresh face? And that could have an interesting dynamic of its own. The fresh face is going to be a thing on Wednesday. (laughs) All right. It's time now for our sidebar feature where we explain an important concept in the current news cycle that isn't necessarily explained in the news. And today, we're going to talk about the right to travel, a constitutional concept that has really come to the fore with the Supreme Court's decision overruling Roe versus Wade, because the question comes up, what about someone who wants to go from her state that precludes or strictly regulates an abortion to another state? Can her state forbid that? And is there a constitutional right to do it as Justice Kavanaugh in the Dobbs case suggested there might be in the right to travel? So that's what we're going to quickly explore, the right to travel and to do it. Very pleased to welcome Julie Ann Emery, a film and TV actress best known for her role as Betsy Kettleman in Better Call Saul. She's also appeared in the movies Hitch and Gifted and the TV shows Preacher and Bosch, among many others. She began her career on stage as a cast member of musicals like Bye Bye Birdie and A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. So I give you Julianne Emery on The Right to Travel. Can a state prevent its residents from traveling to another state to access abortion care? In his concurring opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, the Supreme Court case that overruled Roe v. Wade, Justice Kavanaugh expressed that no state may bar its residents from traveling to another state to obtain an abortion. Kavanaugh opined that the position was not especially difficult as a constitutional matter. 
But what provision provides that right, and does it clearly protect travel for abortion care? Justice Kavanaugh cited a constitutional right to interstate travel. Much like abortion, the right to travel is nowhere mentioned in the Constitution. But the court has recognized the right as encompassing at least three components. First, at its most basic, the right prohibits any state from simply barring out-of-state citizens from entering its territory. Second, the right to travel guarantees out-of-state citizens are entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. Although clarity is lacking as to what exactly that provision conveys, given the court's holding in Dobbs, the privileges and immunities are unlikely to include a woman's right to an out-of-state abortion. That leaves the third component of the right to travel, which provides any U.S. citizen the right to become a citizen of any state on the same footing as that state's current residents. This aspect of the right permits persons to move to a state, establish residency, and thereby become eligible for legal benefits like less expensive college tuition. Importantly, however, the guarantee of equal treatment is only among residents, not those simply entering the state temporarily. That's why, to secure a Vegas divorce, you have to remain in Nevada long enough to establish state residency. This third component, like the other aspects of the right to interstate travel, wouldn't seem to confer a right to go to another state for a brief time to receive medical services. There's an even bigger problem with Justice Kavanaugh's analysis. The real question is not whether one can travel to obtain an abortion in another state, but whether the right to travel restrains the woman's home state from imposing punishment after she returns. Even if the right to travel safeguards the ability to get an abortion in another state, it doesn't follow that the home state couldn't impose criminal charges. Justice Kavanaugh is at the center of the new conservative court. He votes in the majority in up to 90% of the court's cases. If he believes it is not especially difficult to conclude that women who travel outside their home state to obtain an abortion are constitutionally protected, that in and of itself might point to the court's recognition of such a right. But it is far from the established doctrine. For Talking Feds, I'm Julianne Emery. Thank you very much, Julianne Emery, for explaining the right to travel. You can see Julie now playing a health care provider in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in Five Days at Memorial, out now on Apple TV+. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we unbottle the truth about wine. Is there really a right or a wrong way to enjoy it? Wine drinkers near and far have lived by a certain set of written yet unofficial rules to follow, particularly when it comes to pairing wine and food. You've heard a couple of them before. White wine pairs with seafood, red wine pairs with big old juicy steaks. And while we like to think of these more as guidelines than rules, some suggestions actually do serve a higher purpose to help your wine get the most from your dish and vice versa. One pairing that's not quite as obvious involves tannins. Tannins are the dryness that you taste and feel in wine. They come from grape seeds, skin, or oak barrels. Traditionally, high tannin wines and spicy foods don't pair well together. The dry components of the wine become more pronounced with spice, which makes the food itself taste even hotter than it actually is. From drinking red wine with fish to white wine with beef, we say you do you. 
But there is one no-no that we wholeheartedly live by. Always, yes, always hold your glass by the stem and not the bulb. And there are a few reasons why. Putting your warm hands on the bulb transfers unnecessary heat to the wine. As wine warms up, it will become off balance and you will taste the alcohol more and more. Not to mention, you can easily avoid smudges to your beautiful glassware. To truly enjoy wine, you can never go wrong pairing the wonderful selection and helpful guides at Total Wine & More. Cheers. And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right. This is on the clear-eyed plan, and it, I, even if it is more doom and gloom, but I just wanted to follow up a couple mentions already of the remarkable spate of political violence we've been seeing and that might proliferate. Governor Whitman, after the attack on Paul Pelosi, you tweeted out, let there be no doubt, language shapes behavior. Can you elaborate or explain what you meant by that? Sure. I mean, we've been hearing for so long now. We've been pitted against one another. If you don't agree with somebody, they're your enemy. They're not just someone who holds a different opinion. They're your enemy. And they're evil. Because so much of this now is being framed in a way that sounds almost biblical with this evil people. And if you're evil, well, I can't possibly support you. And frankly, I've got to take you out. And they've been encouraged to do that. And the former president, the ex-president, excuse me, he's ex because he was defeated. He's not former, damn it. you got to stop going <laughs> the former president. He's the ex-president. At January 6th, the way he told them, well, go home, but we love you. And we've got to fight. And we've got to continue to fight. And before the rally, and then with Rudy Giuliani and all the other crazies he had around him who were encouraging people to act out physically act out. And when he did nothing to stop it, when he knew how violent it was getting, there are people out there who are not as stable as one would hope. And they hear this kind of language and they think, well, that's that's the call. That's not even a, a dog whistle. That's pretty clear to me that this is what they want us to do. And this is what we should do. And, and this fellow was obviously looking for Nancy Pelosi. When they broke into the Capitol, it was, Nancy, Nancy, where are you? Uh, where is it, yeah. Scary, scary stuff. I happen to think, and I don't know, Carol or, or Bill, you might think differently, but had any, any member of Congress, Republican or Democrat, gotten into the hands of that mob, they wouldn't have known whether they were Republican or Democrat. They just would have beaten them badly, let me put it that way. I don't think they were that discerning once they got in there. They just wanted to lay their hands on people. And I'm afraid this is what we're going to see. But clearly, it's been the language. It's been made acceptable and mainstream. And so for those people who are listening for it, those people who want it, they don't have to listen hard to get the message that it's okay to go out and do this stuff. And to have those Republicans who didn't respond right away, who started to make a joke of it, you just want to shake your head and say, you know, sometime this could go the other way and you might be the targets. You may not like it so much then. I think it's essential not simply to condemn in a kind of moral way, but to portray these people as pathetic, lowest of the low. What's it going to take? It's not like we'll completely excise crazy rhetoric, but what's it going to take to not think that people are going to be acting out on any given day? Well, I think you're going to have to hold people accountable and not just the people that are out on the street. For instance, at States United that I co-chair right. as well as, as Forward Party, we've reached out to the California Bar on more than one occasion about John Eastman. 
because John Eastman, as a respected in quotes, but as one of the president's lawyers, said some outrageous things and gave advice that was clearly not legal, and he should be held accountable. And I think that has to happen up and down the line, not just to the people who actually are on the street, but the people who are giving them those messages that it's okay to do this stuff. We need to get serious about that and say, nobody's above the law. I believe that. And if it's going to get ugly because you hold some of these people accountable, so be it. I'd rather go down fighting for the rule of law in our democracy than saying, well, we'll just make things nice for a while and, and this will all go away. Because it's not. It's not going to go away on its own. Well, to that effect, you know, if you look at just in Washington, how they've tried to deal with it, if you take the January 6th committee, the lesson has been for the Liz Cheney's of the world that you just lose and you're out of a job if you try to hold people accountable. And the January 6th committee, it's one of the things if the Republicans take the House, it'll just be disbanded. So they'll have a final report. They'll probably have a final hearing, but that's going to be jammed into the lame duck session and, and then it's gone. And so from Congress's perspective, which was under attack physically and literally, there was no accountability, really. There's these hearings, but they've been seen as partisan. The country's very divided on them to the extent that anyone paid attention to them. I mean, they're at least people who stormed the Capitol and are going to jail, a lot of them, it seems like. That's, that's true. Good. That's, that's good. But mm-hmm. that's about it. I mean, honestly, there are a lot of tough decisions to make about prosecuting people. Harry knows much more about this than I do. And I really am not critical of DOJ or others in this case. But when I came to Washington in 85, they gave us little speeches, of course, and I was in the Education Department and then in the White House in 89 about, you know, our ethics of obligations and various obligations. And one of the things that was sort of said in passing, and I hope I didn't need to hear it, but it was kind of bracing, was, you know, if you break these laws, you could go to jail. H.R. Uh, Haldeman and John Mitchell and John Ehrlichman and a lot of people spent time in jail after breaking laws. And when you think about them for a minute, incidentally, were they really worse than what Mark Meadows did? as White House Chief of Staff? Was it worse than what other people did? Now, some people in the White House, you could argue they were right to stay there because they made things less bad than they might have been, and I, and I respect that. But there were some who clearly were just going along, as the governor says, I mean, and, and in some cases encouraging violence, in other cases encouraging illegality. All those ele- people who signed those elector slates, they knew what they were doing. They didn't, gee, I'm confused. I might have to be an elector, you know? Maybe I'll be judged a winner, and I just better sign this. They knew what they were doing. It was all part of an attempt to un- overturn the election. They haven't gone to jail. The people who encouraged them to sign those haven't gone to jail. Few people sort of disbarred or so, sort of legal trouble, you know, Rudy Giuliani thing, but not a whole lot on it. And a lot of them are doing very, very well. MAGA world has a huge infrastructure of you know, think tanks and activist groups and consulting contracts and work and, and stuff. That means an awful lot of people who behave pretty badly, I think, there's not been much accountability, I guess. And I don't want to seem like I'm bloodthirsty and everyone should go to jail or anything like that. Quite the contrary. I think one of the good things about our tradition is we tend not to prosecute people in the preceding administration and so forth for legitimate or even questionable decisions they made. But there's been there, too many people have done have knowingly tried to do illegal things or encourage others to do illegal things and basically have skated free. And the result of that is more people continue with the totally irresponsible rhetoric now, maybe some, like with uh, Alex Jones, maybe at some point one of these defamation suits works, and that's a very useful lesson. And maybe that is having some effect. I hope it is. But, you know, that you can't just say the things he said when little kids are killed in a school shooting. But it's hard with the First Amendment and all this. I understand that. But the Trump indictment I mean, would be a big moment, obviously. 
pretty hard after the January 6th committee to not, and after, especially yeah, in my view, after what the documents at Mar-a-Lago and stuff, which having been as, as the governor was in the executive branch and knowing what the normal rules are, that's so unbelievably over the top what he did, that to decide not to prosecute is a pretty shocking thing at this point, would be in my view. But it will be controversial. I'll just say, even if that happens, and I've talked to Many people, including all three last week, who have become persuaded that it'll happen. But your point is very well taken. I just wrote a piece about it that even if Trump, for whatever reason, doesn't get prosecuted, the Haldemans and Ehrlichmans need to. And I think that is really happening and starting with Mark Meadows, that circle is at least getting DOJ scrutiny. And as you say, they certainly deserve, from what we know, to be prosecuted I wanted to ask, from what you just raised in your 1985-point bill and the governor, I'm thinking of the sane Republican Party when I was younger, and Ronald Reagan, he was sunny, morning in America, and the like. On the other hand, you know, Reagan famously was, government is the problem, and I just wonder how you feel as representatives of a previously sane party Do you see today's extremism as in any way sort of an outgrowth or corruption of that now, you know, disappeared message? Do you see a through line in the sort of hostility to government or any anything else? I think it started long before Ronald Reagan. Hostility to government, that's one of the things he ran on. He said that because he could see that people had a uh, real distrust. Even then, The political parties are starting to do what they're now absolutely doing, which is taking any issue and making it political and not trying to solve problems. They'd rather have the issue in order to beat the other side over the head with it and get their base out. It's not doing a good service to the American people, I guess, is the nicest way to say it, because problems are not being solved. But he could see that. So it was happening before. He saw it with, with people who would get together to protest big government and government overspending. I don't think it happened with FDR. I'm not old enough to remember that, so I don't know. But I know there were a lot of people, Republicans particularly, who were very upset with the growth of government. And and so it's been there. It's just that Trump was brilliant at finally putting into words what so many people were feeling. So many people, particularly in the middle of the country, were feeling, not on the coast so much, but in the middle of the feeling in the country, that government wasn't solving their problems. It didn't care about them. It was corrupt. They just talked to each other. The two parties were refused to work together to get anything done. And they wanted someone who was just going to blow the whole thing to smithereens and start all over again without really contemplating what that might look like or what that would involve or what the fallout from something like that would be. So I, I really do think, and you know, Bill, certainly you can correct me on this, and, and Carol, you've seen enough of it. I think it happened long before Ronald Reagan. It started. He capitalized on it to a degree. I mean, Barry Goldwater, to my mind, was the first yes. presidential candidate who took a vote that, to me, was totally against what he really believed when he voted against the Civil Rights Act, because he had integrated the family business, and he did it specifically to get those Southern states. Well, that's all that he got. And Nixon with a Southern strategy, right there you have starting the dividing the country and the fear of big government, exacerbation of of those dislikes just was part of that overall effort of we're going to now find our our bases and we're going to make a real effort to divide them to make sure that we have staked out our people and leave the others behind. 
Yeah, I mean, I think partisanship has been building a long time, and it's now become hyper-partisanship, and actually it's now become polarization, and what do they call it? Effective polarization, which means you really even hate the other side more than you like your own. So I think it's 30, 40 years of that. And that's, some of that's due to things beyond anyone's control, geographic sorting, socioeconomic things. But look, I think it was once there were seeds that were irresponsible and extreme. And that one sentence, perhaps from Reagan's inaugural speech, uh, is a good example. Candidates always were a little more demagogic than presidents. But Trump was the first president as president to be relentlessly demagogic and divisive. I mean, Reagan wasn't. Once he was president, of course, he had arguments with the Democratic uh, House and then the Democratic Congress, but he also famously cut deals with Tip O'Neill and tried to get support for his foreign policy from moderate Democrats and foreign policy and so forth. And it was just such a different world. And and still, one felt that it's just especially what you got into office that you should try to govern effectively. And that meant working across the aisle. And the Republican Party had plenty of moderates, Governor Whitman being one of them, who, you know, were uh, sniped at by the conservatives, certainly, and not loved, perhaps. But everyone was happy to have he was governor of New Jersey, even if you were different from a conservative governor <laughs> somewhere in the rest of the country. Maybe not everyone, but most people were. And then you, you know, Governor Bush wanted to have a broad cabinet. So you were in the cabinet as well as some people more from the right, like Ashcroft. It was a very different mood in that respect. And to be fair to the Republican Party, there was a real exclusion of some people who were bigoted and biased. I mean, Buchanan was basically kicked out of the party. Bob Dole said at the 96th convention, if you don't believe in welcoming all faiths and all groups to this party, the exit signs are marked clearly and you should leave, you know? I mean, so that's still pretty different, I would say. So I think it's fair to say that people like me probably underestimated some of those elements in the party, especially race, I would say, the degree of toxicity still around that. But four years of someone as president making it all worse. So, okay, that was already bad. And the party going along with it was even worse, honestly. It was if you had had a president who was just kind of alone with Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and others saying, well, no, that's not good. We're not going to go along with that. But that was not the mood, obviously, after the first few months. Then January 6th happens, and for 36 hours, it's like, okay, maybe they're finally going to say this is unacceptable. And now that turned out not to be the case. And then everyone's sort of, well, finally, certainly the Republican Governors Association, led by Doug Ducey, is not going to spend $11 million for Carrie Lake, whom he himself said in the primary was sort of unacceptable. And Rob Portman is pro-Ukraine, but he's supporting J.D. Vance. And it's just a case after case of this, right? And so the degree to which the, the capitulation of the establishment to the demagogues is very different from having a party that has an establishment with some demagogues sort of on the side. You know, that's not great, but it's a very different dynamic that we have today, I think. It's not just the hyper-partisanship, but there's this sort of dark and curdled quality of Trump, so deeply saturnine as opposed to, you know, Reagan's, even as he was bashing the other side, he was so upbeat and optimistic about it. Yeah, no, that's right. And part of that is, you know, that's, Trump. And part of that is tapping into a sentiment that's in the country. And the other layer of this is that the disconnect between people in the country and people in Washington has just gotten worse over time. And there's in the country, you know, I'm from Levittown, Pennsylvania, outside a suburb of Philly. My family's all still there. Yeah, go Phillies and Eagles. When you talk to friends I went to high school with, they don't pay as close of attention, obviously, but they just feel like people in Washington are just a bunch of suits who are 
doing things that are benefiting themselves. There's no connection. There's no community there. And that on top of economic hardships that have taken place, you know, changes just generally in the way that people work and make money, all of those things are just an added layer that allow this kind of sentiment and allowed somebody like former President Trump to be elevated to the extent that he was and still is. And that's not getting better. And that's not just Washington politicians. It's also media. It's broader. And there's just not a connectivity between what's happening in Washington and what's happening in the country. And so the only reaction to that is like, blow it up, screw them. They're not doing anything for me. And that's that's just the way people feel. Okay. I don't think we have time to go into it, but there a lot of stuff has happened on the legal landscape just this week alone, and Trump is having to parry incoming from, and some of it very effective. His Trump organization is going to now have a monitor. Alan Weisselberg is going to have to testify truthfully in the next couple weeks. I had a quick question. I just wondered if especially you, Governor Whitman, had any thoughts about it. It looks like Lindsey Graham needs to testify in Fulton County. The pattern to date of Trump acolytes has been delayed, denied, juke jive, but when forced to it, take the fifth. Is that something for a sitting senator that you think just has too big a political consequence or is it a different dynamic or do you anticipate that he can without real cost? do the same things. I think he thinks the cost would be too high if he did answer the questions. If he answered them honestly, that that would be the political cost to him. So I wouldn't doubt for a second, but that he's going to take the fifth wherever he can. There's really no downside for him in doing that. And there's a huge downside for him in telling the truth. And he's just been elected. And that's why Trump attacks these people, the New York State AG and the Fulton County DA, I think is her title. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, we all look at it and think oh, this is inappropriate. And, and also it's kind of foolish because they'll be more angry at him or something. That's not what you do if you're a defense, you know, if you're a defense lawyer, you tell your client to be quiet. But that's true. It's a legal sense, but it's not true politically. They know what they're doing. If they discredit, you know, they'll survive politically if they attack those people. And incidentally, they're also contaminating whatever you guys say in the legal business, the jury <laughs> pool. Yeah. Right. Which is quite a jury pool in Georgia, by the way, a whole nother. Yeah, I'm worried. I mean, I do understand that Merrick Garland's hesitation because is, is it better if he does do a very serious indictment, very well justified? They go to trial, they get the indictment, they go to trial, they get through all the obstacles. God knows how many Trump would put up. And then it's a hung jury, which is not an inconceivable proposition, right? And it's a defeat for sure if it happens. And the, yeah. I think if he's thinking that through seriously, he thinks, yeah, that's not good for the country. So maybe we shouldn't do it. So I, I think it's a very tough situation where the country's gotten itself into at this point. And something that strikes me from all of you is just the world's going to look maybe really different by the next Talking Feds. But we are now just about out of time. Have one minute for our Talking Five final feature. And today's question How long will Elon Musk? own Twitter. Anybody? Five words or fewer. Until there's a new buyer. (laughs) Too long. Until he finds something else to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I'm going to say too long, whatever it is. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Carol, Bill and Governor Whitman. And thank you very much listeners for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. 
You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter, for now anyway, at TalkingFedsPod. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Bart Gelman about what Republican leadership in the House might portend. Submit your questions to talkingfeds.com contact, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Laurel Feldner, Kalena Tano, Emma Maynard, and David Emmett. Thanks very much to Julie Ann Emery for explaining the right to travel and its potential application to abortion jurisprudence after Dobbs. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.